All right, well, make sure you pull out your message notes from your bulletin along with a pen or pencil so you can fill in some blanks, jot down some notes along the way. As always, do make sure you have a Bible in hand. If you didn't bring a Bible with you today, uh, just raise your hand and we will get one into your hands. Barry's right there with Bibles, so he'll get one to you quickly. Our goal is to get a Bible in your hand within five seconds of you raising your hand because Barry is so quick, right? Uh, anyone else? He's got them right there. Message notes. If you didn't get a bulletin on the way in, he'd be happy to get you one of those as well. So do open your Bibles, please, to John chapter 2 as we continue our message series looking at the gospel of John. Uh, John is inviting us to come and see how amazing Jesus Christ really is. Amen? Well, oh, that was really bad, folks. Amen? Amen. Last Sunday, we took a closer look at the final day of Jesus's first week of public ministry. Remember, John wrote his gospel account some 20 plus years after Matthew, Mark and Luke had written their gospel accounts. And so he didn't want to repeat what they had already said. And so one of the things he wanted to do in his first two chapters is to hit some highlights of the first week of Jesus's open public ministry. And so he shares some highlights that Matthew, Mark, and Luke had not shared in their gospel accounts. And so when we made it to chapter 2 last week, we saw in the first 11 verses that Jesus was attending a uh, wedding in Cana of Galilee, just a few miles from his hometown of Nazareth, and he performed his first public miracle. He transformed over 100 gallons of water into wine. And it wasn't just a miracle. More than that, it was a sign It was a sign pointing to who Jesus was and what he had come to do here on earth. And John ends his account of Jesus' first miraculous sign by writing these words in verse 11 of John chapter 2. He writes, Jesus thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Well, let's pick up in verse 12 of John chapter 2 to see what Jesus does after performing his first miracle miraculous sign. If you're there in verse 12 in your Bible, say amen. Here we go. After this, Jesus went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip. He made it out of cords And drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market. We'll go ahead and stop there for now. May God bless us as we study and apply his word to our lives today. Well, we don't know how much time passed between Jesus' first miracle, changing that water into wine, and his encounter with the money changers here in Jerusalem just a few verses later. We don't know how much time has passed. You see, John, when he wrote his gospel account, he didn't set out to write for us a chronological account. Jesus did this, and then immediately afterwards he did that. Uh, Luke is a good one to go to for a chronological order of Jesus' ministry. Luke was a doctor, very detail-oriented. He was concerned about the chronology and laying that out in the gospel of Luke. John was more thematic in the way he wrote. And so he begins, remember, in verse 1 of chapter 1 by saying, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He's telling us in chapter 1 from the very get-go that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the creator of the universe. He is light. He is life. He is our only Savior. 
through whom we can be saved. And so as part of that theme, he wanted to share that first miracle of Jesus in chapter 2. And somehow as part of that theme, he wanted to share with us what happened at the temple with those money changers. And so some Bible scholars will say this is the same event recorded for us by Matthew, Mark, and Luke that they say took place in Jesus' final week of ministry. You go near the end of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, their gospel accounts, and you'll read that this happened on Monday of Holy Week, just about three days before Jesus was arrested and the following day nailed to the cross. And so some scholars believe John is telling us the same episode. Others will say, no, this was a separate time that Jesus drove out the money changers. I lean more toward that second interpretation. I believe Jesus drove out the money changers twice. Once early in his ministry, recorded here in John 2, and a second time recorded by Matthew, Mark, and Luke in the final week of Jesus' ministry. However you look at that, John's point doesn't change. Jesus did this. These are the facts of what happened, and here is the meaning behind it. Well, John's account of Jesus clearing the temple courts of the merchants and the money changers, uh, it may be referring to that same episode, but regardless, he tells us in verse 13, As the time of Passover drew near, Jesus and his disciples traveled to Jerusalem. Notice it says he traveled up to Jerusalem. Capernaum was about 80 miles from Jerusalem. So if you look at the map at first glance, it seems weird that it says he traveled up to Jerusalem because Capernaum's at the top of the map and Jerusalem's way down near the bottom. But Capernaum was like 600 feet below sea level. It was there along the Sea of Galilee, some of the land in Israel, some of the lowest land on earth. By the Dead Sea further south, uh, there's spots 1,100 feet below sea level around the Dead Sea. And so about 600 feet below sea level, Capernaum, he travels about 80 miles to Jerusalem, about 2,500 feet above sea level. So he's literally traveling up to Jerusalem. He gets there and he remembers something that had been said, I'm sure, in Deuteronomy 16.16. Back in the Old Testament law, God had said in Deuteronomy that every Jewish man was supposed to travel three times a year to the three most important Jewish feasts. Every Jewish man was supposed to go to a central area to celebrate the Passover, to celebrate Pentecost, and to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. So every good Jewish man tried to make it to these three feasts every year. Now, in the case of those that lived in Capernaum, 80 miles away, you traveled by foot. That's a three- or four-day journey for many people and many families. So many Jewish men in Jesus' day couldn't make it all the way down to Jerusalem three times a year. So if they could only make one feast a year, guess which feast they would go to? I think I heard it from a couple of you. Yeah, Passover. That was of the three most important feasts, the coup de grace the most important one to try to attend in Jerusalem. And so Jesus goes down to Jerusalem. We believe he did this every year during his active years of ministry. He goes down to Jerusalem, or as it says in the text, he actually goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. According to verse 14, Jesus enters the temple courts in Jerusalem, and he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging Money. Now, the temple courts term used here is referring to the larger outer court of the temple. We've looked at this 
a diagram before. And so this is a nice scale replica of what it looked like in Jesus's day. In the center of the temple complex is the part we most recognize, the large, tall temple building in Old Testament times. Remember the two sections of the temple, the innermost part was called the Holy of Holies. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was stored, where the Shekinah glory of God rested. And so here in this middle part of the temple, there were three courts. Closest to the main temple building was the court of priests. You could only get close to that main temple building if you were a Jewish priest. Just outside of that was the court of Israel. Only the good Jewish men could be in that court. A little bit further out, down around in here, would have been the court of the women where only Jewish women could be. And then finally, the largest part of the temple complex was the court of the Gentiles on both sides of the main building. You'll probably notice here that there's a small little fence separating the court of the Gentiles from the main part of the temple. On that fence, every few feet, there were signs posted in three different languages that said the same thing. If you are a Gentile, you shall not pass. If you come past this fence, you're a dead man. You will be killed because you will be defiling the temple. And so if you were a non-Jew who wanted to come to Jerusalem, let's say you lived up in Capernaum, you wanted to travel 80 miles to go for Passover to the temple to seek the one true God and worship the one true God, if you were going to the temple, you could only be in this area. And where were the money changers? In that exact same area. So think about this, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in the message. If you were someone who was not Jewish seeking the one true God, The money changers and the merchants were shutting you out from being able to encounter the one true God because they took that holy place and turned it into a flea market. That's why Jesus is getting so ticked. You see, the Jewish leaders never allowed Gentiles to defile the inner courts of the temple, but they apparently had no problem with defiling the outer courts of the temple with their price gouging flea market. By the time Jesus walked onto the scene here in John 2, the Passover feast had been so commercialized by the Jewish high priest Annas, it was barely recognizable of the feast that had taken place in Old Testament times. I like how Chuck Swindoll explains it. He writes, By the first century, the feast of Passover hardly resembled the solemn event of Israel's exodus from bondage in Egypt. The priesthood was completely corrupt, and the temple had been polluted by the priest's greed. All Jewish males were expected to pay the tax required by the law of Moses and to sacrifice a lamb. The Jewish leaders set up stations in the temple courts for the purpose of exchanging foreign currency for shekels, for an exorbitant fee, of course. Then they supplied sacrificial animals for which they charged top price. If someone brought his own animal, an inspector would judge it unfit and offer another in trade for additional cash. So imagine you traveled from Capernaum, 80 miles, and over the past year, you have been raising your prize lamb. And that lamb gets to that perfect age of one year old, and it is perfect. It's the prettiest little lamb you've ever seen. And you take it with your family 80 miles up to Jerusalem to offer as your sacrifice at Passover. And what would happen is the priest inspectors would come and look at your little lamb, and they would come up with something that was wrong with it. Oh, you know what? Its back leg's a little crooked, or, you know, it's got this off-color spot uh, back by its tail. It's just not good enough. So tell you what, you give us your old lamb, and we'll get you a better one for an upcharge. 
And you were stuck. If an inspector didn't approve of your sacrifice, you couldn't have the priest sacrifice it. And so imagine you give them your little lamb, you pay them a little extra cash to get their so-called better lamb. After you leave and have your sacrifice done, guess what they did with your old lamb 15 minutes later? Yeah, they sold it to some other sucker saying that lamb was better than the one he had brought. And so they were doing this, man. There was price gouging going on. It was a racket. It was an absolute flea market. And Jesus is infuriated. These guys are seeing all these guys coming into town for worship, and these priests are going, cha-ching, cha-ching. It's like taking, taking candy from a baby, right? They thought this was so easy, quick cash for themselves, and it ticked Jesus off. According to verses 15 and 16, he makes a whip out of cords. This is one of the reasons I think this is a separate driving out of the money changers. There's no whip mentioned by Matthew, Mark, or Luke. So he takes the time to make himself a nice little whip. He drives them from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scatters the coins of money changers, overturns their tables. To those who stole doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? Man, Jesus, one of the few times in the Gospels, he is ticked. Zeal for his house. Zeal for God's house had consumed him. That's pretty remarkable. One man single-handedly drove out dozens of money changers and merchants. How does one guy do that? It's Jesus, right? That's how one guy does it. As far as we know, the disciples weren't lifting a finger to help him. It was all Jesus. And so he was full of the Holy Spirit, and he was the Son of God, and he went, he went to work. And he drived all those out of there. He drove them all out of the temple courts. Well, let's pick up in verse 17 to see how the spectators responded to Jesus causing this upheaval in the temple courts. Beginning in verse 17, it says, Jesus' disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it's taken us 46 years to build this temple, but you're going to raise it up in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous sign he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need men's testimony about man, for he knew what was in man. Well, what Jesus did in the temple courts could not be ignored. It was far too confrontational for spectators to have no opinion on the matter. Everybody had an opinion about it. Stunned silence was, in all likelihood, the initial reaction of the disciples. Can you imagine being one of Jesus' new disciples? He had at least five at the time here. And they were just probably with their jaws dropped open, trying to process what was going on right in front of them. That was probably their first reaction. But what John tells us here in verse 17 is that they remembered that prophetic scripture from the book of Psalms. Psalm 69 verse 9 says, Zeal for your house consumes me. And all of Psalm 69 was viewed by the Jewish people in Jesus' day as being a prophetic psalm talking about what would happen in the days that the Messiah would come to Jerusalem. And so they believed that Jesus fulfilling this prophecy about being zealous for the house of God was yet another bit of evidence proving that he was, in fact, 
the Messiah, the chosen Savior of Israel. So that was Jesus' disciples' reaction. A second, John shares with us the Jewish leaders' reaction in verses 18 through 20. Like Jesus' disciples, the Jewish leaders viewed Jesus' act as something the Messiah would do. They didn't argue that. The Messiah would do exactly this type of thing when he comes. He's going to make sure that God's house is kept pure, that he drives out anything that doesn't belong, any, any uh, remnant of sin. And so they didn't disagree that what Jesus had just done was Messiah-like, but they had an issue with whether or not Jesus had the authority to do what the Messiah would do. So they say, show us a sign. We know that what you just did was Messiah-like, but unless we see a sign, we won't have the evidence we need to come to the conclusion that you're the Messiah and that you have the authority to do what you just did. Got it? They said, you've got to show us that you have the authority. Show us a sign that you're the Messiah so we can accept what you just did by driving out all the money changers and the merchants. Well... We find this type of thing throughout Jesus' ministry. His critics and sometimes even his followers want him to show them a sign. Show us a sign, Jesus. Show us a sign so we know who you claim to be. And in verse 19, Jesus responds by saying, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Well, of course, they didn't understand what he was talking about, did they? And so those Jewish leaders thought that Jesus was referring to the temple complex, the building there in Jerusalem. Jesus' own disciples thought the same thing, that he was talking about the structure of the temple. And it wasn't until after his resurrection that something clicked, and they realized when he was talking about destroying the temple and raising it up in three days, he was actually talking about the temple of his body. He would conquer death on Easter morning and raise it after three days of being in the grave. John tells us this in verses 21 and 22. It clicked after he had risen from the dead. Well, it seems clear from verse 23 that while Jesus was in Jerusalem, he performed miraculous signs that aren't recorded by John or the other gospel writers. In all likelihood, there in Jerusalem during this Passover week, Jesus was opening the eyes of a few blind guys, probably healing a few lepers, possibly uh, driving out some demons from demon-possessed men. Uh, We're not told by John or the other gospel writers what specific miracles he performed, but evidently he performed some that week, and some people, as they saw those miracles, put their faith in Jesus. But Jesus didn't entrust himself to those that were impressed by his miracles. He understood what God the Father had said to the prophet Samuel back in 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks where? He looks at the heart. Jesus looked at the hearts of his new adoring fans, and they seemed to be on cloud nine for Jesus today. But he knew they'd turn their backs on him tomorrow. And so he didn't entrust himself to them. He continued to do what God had called him to do. Even though he had some new adoring fans, even though he had some critics, some adoring fans on the same day, it didn't see what Jesus did. Verse 24, he would not entrust himself to them. Well, back in the first chapter, Jesus had met Simon, Andrew's brother. And remember what he said to Simon when he first met him. He said, ah, you are Peter. You're the rock man. And on this rock, he would later say, I will build my church. He said, you're Peter, you're the rock. And most people would have been listening to Jesus, Andrew, and anyone else that was within earshot and said, Simon, the rock, he ain't no rock. That guy's messed up. 
But Jesus, being God, could look into the heart and know exactly who Simon could become. So he called him Peter, the rock. A little bit later, he meets Nathaniel, and he says, Oh, here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. He could see what no one else could see in Nathaniel, because that's who Jesus is. Looks past the outward appearance and can see the heart. So Jesus, the Almighty Creator and Son of God, He looked into the hearts of the new believers in Jerusalem, and He saw plainly that their plans weren't God the Father's plans. And their timing wasn't God the Father's timing. So their support of Him didn't change His plans at all, did it? He kept doing what God the Father wanted when God the Father wanted it done. I have a question for you today. How many of you have ever been a leader with certain individuals placed under your leadership? You've ever had followers underneath you? Okay, a number of you, probably others of you that, you know, your arms sore, didn't want to raise it. A lot of us have been in a leadership capacity in some sort of some sort. How many of you have been leaders in business? Let me ask for that specifically. Okay, those of you who are leaders in business, maybe you've discovered this. Your followers will often, oftentimes fall into one of three camps on the spectrum, on the pendulum. On one side of the pendulum, you've got followers that simply tolerate you. <laughs> Ever had followers like that in your business world? They just tolerate you. They're not crazy about you. They're certainly not going to invite you over to their house for dinner, but they don't hate you enough to quit and go somewhere else. They tolerate you. Your, their leader is okay. The organization you're leading is okay. And so they tolerate you. In the middle are most followers, those that kind of like you as a leader, that kind of like the business that you're leading, and they're moderately happy and content to continue on with business as usual. And then on the other side of the pendulum are those that think you are the best thing since sliced bread. The same thing happens in the church. I found over the years as being a pastor that there are people that tolerate me. They're not crazy about Dean. They're not going to have me over for dinner, but they like me good enough, I guess, and, and the church good enough, so they keep coming. And then most people in a church are somewhere in the middle. They're, they're pretty happy with the pastor. They trust the pastor. They're pretty happy with the elders. They're pretty happy with the doctor of the church and all that stuff. So they keep coming and get involved and support. Then on the other end of the spectrum are those that deep down think that the pastor is the best thing since sliced bread. I actually had someone tell me once, Dane... In my mind, you're the closest thing to Jesus. That's pretty disturbing, isn't it? That is pretty disturbing. I can think of a billion plus angels that are a whole lot closer to Jesus than I am. And probably a few billion followers of Christ who have died before me that are a whole lot closer to Jesus than I am. And so not only is that a factually false statement, it's a warped statement. You know what I've discovered over the years? Most of the time when someone thinks their pastor is the best thing since sliced bread and he can do no wrong, oftentimes they're the ones that turn on a dime and the very next day they're the biggest critic of the pastor. And so I have learned, especially in recent years, that don't believe my biggest, I shouldn't ever believe my biggest fans. I shouldn't also believe my biggest critics either. Usually the truth somewhere in the middle. But ultimately, I think Jesus is setting for us who lead a wonderful example. Whether you are surrounded by critics, surrounded by your biggest fans that think you're the best thing since sliced bread, or a bunch of people in the, in the middle that think you're okay and, you know what, you're pretty decent. 
regardless of who is surrounding you, you keep doing what God has called you to do when God has called you to do it because he's the boss and not that person that has an opinion standing next to you. Amen? God has called us to follow him and not follow the shifting waves of popular opinion. Well, I want to share with you three life lessons that I believe we can pull from this great passage today. Here we go. Life lesson number one. The condition of your worship reflects the condition of your relationship with God. The condition of your worship reflects the condition of your relationship with God. The sad condition of worship at the temple during Passover week reflected the sad condition of the priest's relationship with God. Their worship was a dull routine because their relationship with God was a dull routine. Their worship was shallow because their relationship with God was shallow. The same holds true for you and me today. If going to church has become a a dull routine for you, it's because your relationship with Jesus Christ has become a dull routine. If church for you has become rather stale, it's in all likelihood because your relationship with Christ has become stale. So how do we fix our worship on a Sunday? How, if you have this desire to worship with greater depth, with greater passion, with greater energy, when you come together with the church family on a Sunday morning, if you want your worship to go deeper on a Sunday morning, how do you fix that problem? It's really not rocket science. You fix the problem by fixing it on Monday through Saturday. The problem on Sunday is a natural reflection of a problem going on Monday through Saturday. If you are not in God's Word every day, there's one of your problems. You can't just open the Word of God once a week when you come to church. Many churches these days, they don't even have you open on Sundays. It's the reason we don't put all the verses on the screen. I want you to see it for yourself in the Word of God. I want you to open the Word of God on a Sunday, but never do I want you to only open the Word of God on a Sunday. If your time of studying in God's Word is stale on Sundays, it's probably because it's stale on Monday through Saturdays. You've got to be praying not just on Sunday morning, but on Mondays through Saturdays. You've got to be praying to the Lord, making prayer a priority. You've got to be with your family to whatever extent God has given you that ability to lead your family, to be in God's Word, to be in prayer, to make Him a priority. If Jesus Christ and you are going deeper together Monday through Saturday, I guarantee you, you'll be going deeper together on Sunday mornings as well. Amen? God has called us. God has called us. To have a worship on Sundays that reflects the condition of our relationship with God every other day of the week. Life lesson number two. You and I have turned our temples into corrupt flea markets. And only Jesus Christ has both the authority and the zeal to clean house. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, the Apostle Paul writes, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price, therefore honor God with your body. It's a bit troubling when Christians say things like this. It's my body and my choice. Now, we would expect a non-Christian to say that. But we should never expect a Christian to say that. It's my body, it's my choice. No, it's not. It's not your body. You didn't create your body. Jesus Christ did. If you don't like how your body looks when you look in the mirror, you can take that up with him. But he made it, not you. And if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, he bought you a second time, didn't he? He purchased you as you gave your life to him. 
And so he says, you're not your own. You were bought at a price, the highest price that Jesus could pay. He bought you with his own life. And so it's not your body to do with what you want. It's his body to do with what what he wants. Some Christians say, I can do whatever I want. Who gave you that crazy idea? You can't do whatever you want. You can't do whatever you want. It's, It's not your body. It's not your life. It's his If you were a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, you didn't just accept Christ to be your Savior, to give you some quick fire insurance to keep you out of hell. You accepted Him as your Savior and your Lord. Amen? And you know what that word Lord means, don't you? Lord means boss. It means jefe. It means master. It means even slave master. Jesus Christ is my slave master. He's in the driver's seat, not me. He calls the shots, not me. I can't do whatever the heck I feel like doing. He is my leader. He is my master. I do what he wants me to do. His will takes priority over my will. Brothers and sisters, our self-centeredness has resulted in these temples of ours, and these temples of the Holy Spirit being polluted. Your temple has become a flea market, and Jesus has rolled up his sleeves. And what's he doing today? He's rolling up his sleeves, and he's making himself a little whip. And he's saying, here I am, i got my whip in hand, and I'm ready to clean house. And if you're here today, I encourage you to seek your, your to search your mind and heart and, and ask the Lord in all honesty, there's, there's some things in my life on the inside, not the skin on the outside, but the stuff on the inside, is there some house cleaning that needs to take place? Men, have you been exposing yourself to porn and filling your mind with smut? Jesus is standing here with a whip today, and he wants to clean your mind. He wants to clean your thoughts. Some of us, maybe like Richard, are thinking, man, I'd like to get that guy that, you know, did me wrong. That friend of mine that stabbed me in my back, what my parents did to me, what my kids did to me, what my ex-boss did to me, what my ex-wife or ex-husband did to me. I I I want to get him. Man, if I had the chance and you start thinking about what you would do to him, if you could get away with it, And Jesus is standing with his whip today and saying, will you let me clean your thoughts? Will you let me clean your mind? Some of us, man, we we cuss like a sailor during the week when we're not in church. And you got F-bombs and S-H-bombs coming off your lip like they're going out of style. And you need to say, Lord Jesus, I know you got got your whip in hand today. Would you clean my lips? Would you clean up my language? Would you clean my mouth? I can't tame it on my own. Some of us are listening to smut we shouldn't be... Be listening to some of us have hearts that are hard today and we're keeping Jesus Christ at bay. He's there with whip in hand. Will you allow him to cleanse your heart? Will you allow him to cleanse your lips and your eyes and your ears? He's asking us today. Will you let me clean out the temple of the Holy Spirit? Will you let me clean you out from the inside? Finally, life lesson number three. If we aren't others focused, our church can easily become a closed club which keeps unbelievers from meeting Christ and getting saved. I love the scene from the movie Jesus Revolution that came out just a few months ago. And how many of you have seen Jesus Revolution? Man, you got you got to catch it. you got to catch that movie. It's not in the theaters anymore, but uh, you can do a pay-per-view, or it's probably in one of the streaming services now. I love the scene when the elders are challenging Pastor Chuck Smith and saying, you know what, those barefoot hippies are coming in with their dirty feet. And they're messing up our new shag carpet. And he starts getting a little upset, Chuck Smith does. But the next scene, you see him on a little stool kneeling down. And one by one, the hippies are coming in through the front door of the sanctuary. And he's down on his little stool washing their feet one by one. He does 
what needed to be done. He washes the dirty feet so no longer could the elders have any excuse about dirty feet messing up their shag carpet. He took the nature of a servant, Chuck Smith did, and it was transformational for that church. You know, sometimes we shake our heads in disapproval of the elders there at Calvary Chapel who wanted to keep the hippies from coming to church. But sometimes we're not any better. Sometimes we make church so much about our preferences and our desires and our comfortability that we forget that it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about the church of Jesus Christ being God's mission station on earth to reach those who are lost and dying without Jesus Christ and will spend an eternity separated from him in hell if they don't accept Christ. Jesus Christ calls us to fling open the church doors and make it clear to anyone and everyone in our community who wants to meet Jesus Christ, you can meet Him here. Amen? You want to learn about Jesus Christ, you can learn about Him here. You want to learn God's Word, you can learn about Him here. You want to be prayed for or just simply have a place where you can feel close to God and pray, you can pray and be prayed for here. High school dropouts can meet Jesus here. Homeless men and women can meet Jesus here. Divorced moms and dads can meet Him here. Addicts can meet Jesus here. Gay men and gay women can meet Jesus here. Gossips and cheats and liars and blasphemers can meet Him here. No matter your age, no matter your color, no matter your employment status, no matter your religious background, no matter your sin, you can meet Jesus right here. And so we open our doors. We clean house and we open the doors. And we're not going to turn Jesus' house into a marketplace where someone innocently comes in trying to find out more about this Jesus thing. And the very Christians who have been called to beckon them and call them in and show them Christ are the ones who end up pushing them away. That's not going to happen here. You see, Jesus made it so clear on the day he drove out the money changers, particularly when he did his final week of ministry. He said, the word of God says, my father's house will be a house of prayer for all nations. It was true 2000 years ago in Jerusalem, and it's equally true today right here. In Apple Valley, California. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for cleansing the temple. Thank you for driving out the money changers. Thank you for driving out, Lord, those that were turning your house into a marketplace. And I pray, O God, that you would do a work of cleansing in our own temples today. We want this place of worship, this building, to be a house of prayer. Anyone is welcome here. But, Lord, we want to make sure also that our bodies remain purified temples of the Holy Spirit. Cleanse our minds, cleanse our hearts, cleanse our lips, cleanse our eyes, cleanse our ears. We expose ourselves to smut. Sometimes it pours forth from our own lips. Lord, as the psalmist said, give us clean hands and a pure heart. Create in us a a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within us. And I pray if there's anyone here who's never accepted Jesus as Savior and Lord, that right now in the stillness of this moment, they would make that decision and say, Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please come into my life and wash my sins away. I invite you to come and take the wheel of my life 
please be in the driver's seat of my life. I don't want to just accept you as Savior for selfish reasons to keep me out of hell. I want to also accept you as my Lord. I accept you as my leader, my boss, my master. Where you say go, I will go. What you say to do, I will do in your perfect timing. Lord, just come into my life. And I promise to follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name.